0: Hey everybody, you're listening to the Clearer Thinking Podcast from Grace Valley Church in Dundas. I'm your host, Paul Vandenbrink, the lead pastor of Grace Valley Church. Thanks for listening. Well, all right, we are back with another episode of the Clearer Thinking Podcast. Thank you very much for checking us out. And uh, by the way, I just want to thank all of those who of you who have contacted me in various ways over the last little while. Telling me that you appreciate the co- the podcast, it's 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 weird, you know, to do something like this. Um, for me, at first, the idea was just to clarify my own thoughts about deconstruction and that kind of thing, and and I thought I'd put it together uh, for my own church folks. I'm trying to pastor my own community as best I can and talk about things that were relevant to them. And I know, of course, the issue of deconstruction was something that they were facing and experience. Sometimes experiencing, but certainly facing uh, in maybe their kids or their friends or siblings or something like that. But then you do this, right? And it just kind of goes out into the interweb sphere or whatever it's called. Out there it goes. And then, you know, people can share it and it sort of spreads. Um, And I I do appreciate the feedback uh, because it encourages me, you know? It, It encourages me to keep going. Somebody's listening to it and appreciating it so I can carry on, which is, which is good. And that's what I'm going to do. So, uh, yeah, you know, the, the cultural moment we find ourselves in is one where human beings have come to see themselves as highly, highly sexualized. Sexuality is not just a part of who they are. It's just, it's not just a part of their own sort of self-definition. It's, it's become the core of their identity and up until now, we've, we've really just been trying to understand the intellectual roots of that phenomenon. We, we've been seeing how the sexual revolution isn't actually about sex at all. It, it's, it isn't just about sexual freedom. It's actually an entire worldview revolution. And that revolution has taken, you know, centuries to accomplish. So we spent six episodes tracing that revolution. And, uh, well... You know, as I was thinking about this, I kind of realized, now this is good. Uh, It's good to know something about the complex philosophical arguments that have brought us to where we are as a society. That's a a good thing to do. But it's long and it's complicated. And if you're anything like me, it's really hard to remember it all. And then on top of that, to direct it or, or to connect it directly to issues of human sexuality. And by that, I mean uh, homosexuality and transgender, or what is sometimes referred to as soji, you know, sexual orientation and gender identity. Those are the big questions that people are wrestling with right now. Certainly in the church, we are wrestling with it right now. There are other Christian institutions, uh, educational institutions, not-for-profit institutions that serve uh, the broader culture are wrestling with those questions right now. And our culture is wrestling with these questions as well, at least when it comes to gender identity. Uh, Our culture has probably moved on mostly from questions around sexual orientation, although not entirely, Uh, but it is certainly wrestling with the issue of gender identity right now. And so I thought that before I get into these issues in more detail, and I know I promised I was going to start dealing with these issues directly and, and in detail. Uh, I am. I promise you. But before I do that, I just I want to simplify everything I've done so far so that people have something that they can hold on to. A kind of framework that they can hold on to so that whenever they think about these issues, they don't have to think about, you know, six episodes of podcasts about the intellectual development of western culture. Um, they can just say, oh yeah, okay, that's right. I remember where this is coming from. I know what's going on here. And, you know, a simple framework for hearing and discussing is important because, you know, you're going to have conversations about sexual orientation and gender identity. And if you can keep the framework front and center as you discuss these issues, you're going to be you're gonna be able to stay on track a little more easily because listen, we all know these issues are highly charged and they're highly charged because they are so personal. We must never forget that, okay? There are real people with real feelings and real experiences behind the philosophy. And, And it's not just a theoretical question for them. For these folks, this is an existential question, okay? This, this is everything. Uh, I don't have same-sex attraction. I don't struggle with that or, or with my gender identity. Um, and so I don't know what it's like to live with that. And the truth is, yeah, sure, we all have our struggles. We all have our issues that we're dealing with in life. But, but these struggles, they are unique, and we have to acknowledge that. You know, sometimes people want to say, well, you know, it's no different than X or it's no different than Y. And there's some are, there are some things that are analogous, but there is a uniqueness to this issue as well. With respect to gender dysphoria, it's unique in that it's an extreme form of crisis between one's biology and one's psychology. And yeah, I'm not saying there are no analogous conditions to that. We're, we're going to see in our next episode, anyway, uh, that there are some analogies. But, but what I'm saying is that for most people, this is something that we don't have experience with. And when it comes to same-sex attraction, people who experience that and are faced with the historical, biblical position on sexuality, they, they're faced with the prospect, if they want to be obedient to God in this area of their, their lives, They face the prospect of living without what we define as as romantic love. I I don't mean just sex, okay? I I mean that mysterious union of two lives into one that marriage is meant to provide. And that is a huge ask. That is a tremendous sacrifice that, that these folks are being called to make in obedience to Christ most of us we just don't know what that's like most of us don't know what it's like to make a sacrifice on that scale okay um again there are some things that are analogous and similar but we just need to name the profound significance of the struggle that same-sex attracted folks face and so these are highly charged issues, and conversations can get very emotional very quickly. And having a framework can help us uh, help us avoid getting caught up in emotion. So what's the framework? Well, I I apologize, but I have to introduce one more philosopher. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh i can't promise that this will be the last one but i can promise that i won't talk about him for too long how about that um up until the 1700s you know most cultures believed that reality consisted of a natural order and a moral order okay a physical realm and a spiritual or non-physical physical realm okay or a mental realm and they existed in a unified system of truth so you had body and soul. You had facts and values. You have subjective and objective. And those different realms, they corresponded with each other. Uh, you could think of reality as a house or as a two-story house. So, so you can picture the main floor or the, or the lower story of the house. Uh, that's the physical world, Okay. And then you have the upper story of the house, the second floor. That's the world of morality and spirituality and theology, okay? And it all formed one house, and you went up and down the stairs from the physical into the metaphysical uh, quite seamlessly and easily. And that's how, how people understood reality up until the Enlightenment, okay? Now, when the Enlightenment hit, Obviously, that was the rise of uh, the the discipline of science as we know it today. It was development of the scientific method and the hypothesis method and all this kind of stuff. And during the Enlightenment, with the rise of science, um, it came to be be believed that reliable knowledge could be found through the scientific method alone. So uh, certain reliable knowledge about morality or spirituality couldn't really be known because it couldn't be tested. So for example, you ask, what is good? What is right? What do we value? These are things you couldn't test via the scientific method. And so you were sort of left with personal feelings and preferences about those things. And so this unified concept of truth where, you know, body, soul, fact, value, subjective, objective, these things uh, where they were united before in this unified concept of truth, that was split. It was split into two separate domains. You had the scientific domain of facts, which was the lower story of the house, okay? And then you had the subjective domain of metaphysics, of morality, theology, philosophy, that all existed in the upper level or upper story of the house. The lower story was public truth. It was valid for everybody, right? Because you could demonstrate the truth of it scientifically, you know, the distance of a kilometer, uh, the weight of a kilogram. Those were things that were public truth because those things were scientifically verifiable. The upper story became privatized, private truth, because it was subjective and it was relative and it it was not scientifically demonstrable. Now, over time, that split between the lower story and the upper story It only grew, and they became increasingly at odds with each other. People were wondering, which truth is primary? Which reality is primary? Is it the lower story of the physical world, or is it the upper story of the mind? Okay? Is it the lower story of the physical world, or is it the upper story of the immaterial mind world? And over time, the upper story their camp, they began to win out in this battle between the two perspectives. And it was Immanuel Kant who kind of was the definitive blow in this battle. He deepened the divide because this is what he said. He said, okay, there's two stories uh, to reality. There's the physical world and then there's the mental world, the lower story and the upper story. But he said, wait a minute, we only know the physical world that is the lower story through our interpretation of it by the mind which is the upper story through our senses we discover the physical world right sight hearing taste touch right we discover the physical world that way but how are those impressions those discoveries how are they organized they're organized by the human mind the human mind is what makes sense of it all. And so effectively, Kant set human consciousness at the center of reality. So then rather than saying our minds should conform to the world around us, reality has to conform to our minds because our minds are the interpreters of the sense data that we discover around us. Ever since Kant... Western culture has increasingly privileged the upper story of the mind over the lower story of the physical. So you may remember Nietzsche. We were talking about Nietzsche before. He said that there are no facts. There are only interpretations. Right? Mind over body. Inner self, you could say, over outer self. They're no longer integrated, okay? The inner self and the outer self are no longer integrated. Integrated, that's from the word integrity, which is the state of being whole and undivided. That was lost with this division of reality into the physical and the mental. Now, what on earth does this have to do with today's view of sexuality? What's the result today? Well, think about this. Today, our culture takes Kant's divide to its logical conclusion. Our physical bodies don't tell us anything about who we really are. That's what our modern culture says. Our bodies are just accidental. In other words, they're not, they're not constitutive or fundamental or integral or necessary parts of our true self. They inhabit that lower story, the main floor of the house. Remember the physical, that's that's where they sit, okay? The true self is found in the mind, in the upper story. And so the body, the sexed body, male body, female body, has no moral meaning in and of itself. The mind imposes meaning on it. The mind imposes meaning on it and when the mind and body are in conflict with one another you're expected to choose the mind over the body see this is an anthropology okay a theory of human being that says the real you is the you that you feel inside we've talked about this before remember that term expressive individualism The authentic self believes that personal meaning must be found within ourselves or at least must resonate with our one-of-a-kind personality. We must be true to ourselves. When people say that, they mean true to their internal feelings or desires or hopes or dreams. They're not talking about their bodies. They're expressing their inner self, and, and by doing that, This way, um, they're saying that it's in fact, their moral duty to accept themselves as they truly are. It's not enough to simply say, uh, this is how I feel I am. They are compelled to actualize it. Remember we talked about that. You have to express it outwardly. That's how you become fully human. Nobody can tell you what you are or what you should be. Okay. The world, according to this philosophy is really a social construction because the mind, the human mind determines reality. And the sexual revolution took that to its logical conclusion, saying that sex (laughs) is a social construction. And today the next step is being developed when we say that gender is a social construction. In in our world, which is you know they call it a postmodern, post-Christian world. I don't even know if those terms are really that helpful. But anyhow, in our world, gender is totally disassociated from the body and can be anything you want it to be. So if gender is a social construction, then it can be deconstructed and reconstructed any way we want it. What I'm trying to say is is that the body is a blank canvas on which we paint our true selves and we are free to use it any way we see fit in order to express our true selves to the world our bodies don't in and of themselves communicate anything about who we are because the inner self the mind defines the body this here's the long and the short of it okay what i'm the framework i'm trying to explain modern society modern culture has a low view of the body, of the physical body. This is the framework to remember. Modern society has a very low view of the body. It's not the first society to do that. It's actually nothing new, really. Uh, Plato said that the body was the prison of the soul. And the early church, uh, they had to deal with a, a religion called Gnosticism that basically taught that the physical world is evil and the spiritual world is good, so escaping the physical world should be our goal in life. And actually, Eastern religions they teach different versions, essentially, of the same thing. In the modern context, though, because we live in a in a world that has no transcendental realm, it has no spiritual realm. We are we live in a materialistic culture. Okay. Um, This belief can be summed up in the words of Camille Paglia. Some of you may have heard that name before. She is an absolutely brilliant radical feminist scholar. I disagree vehemently with much of what she says, but she is extremely bright. But she represents this modern perspective when she says, fate, not God, has given us our bodies and we can do with them as we see fit. Wow. Wow. We can do with them as we see fit. Now, as I said, this worldview is not new, but today it has incredibly far reaching consequences. Think about this. I get this from Nancy Percy, by the way. Nancy Percy, she wrote a book called Love Thy Body. It is a a remarkable book. Uh, I've been stumping for Carl Truman's book The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self for a while, but now I'm going to turn my attention to Nancy Percy's book Love Thy uh, Body Love Thy Body, read it it's fantastic, it's kind of a reference book because it's heavy I know, it's another heavy book, but it is worth the effort anyway, one of the things she points out is this a free society can only be truly free when it recognizes that some rights that human beings have are pre-political. Now, what that means, pre-political, what that means is that these rights exist prior to the existence of any state or any government. They are not created by the state or by the government. They exist by virtue of us being alive, and they are simply recognized by the state or the government. Now, Many pre-political rights exist because of biology. They are based on our biology. But when we lose biology as a fundamental reality, when we deny the the is-ness of our biology or the importance of our physicality, we lose those rights. Let me give you some examples. For example, bioethicists agree that human life life itself, begins at conception. That is not in dispute. The evidence from genetics and DNA is simply too strong to deny it. But they argue that simply being human and having life is not enough to qualify for legal protection. So the fetus, I'm a Christian, so I like the word baby, but the fetus has to earn the right to life by becoming a person. And a person is defined in terms of mental abilities. There's a certain level of self-awareness and brain functioning. So a biological life at some point becomes a person. And at that point, arbitrarily determined by the state, the life is considered deserving of protection. And this is because modern society has separated the stories of the house the physical is the body, they have a low view of it, and the mind is all that matters and they have a high view of that. And so the state has to step in and determine which humans have the right to live, not based on bio- biology, but just based on legal fiat. Or consider another example, marriage. Marriage is also a pre-political right. Um, and even, uh, you know, the, the Civil Marriage Act of Canada acknowledges that. Um, but historically, it was based on biology, on reproduction, in fact. Because of their corresponding sex, men and women have the capacity for reproduction. And because of that... They enter the institution of marriage, and that institution is protected for the purpose of stability and raising children. By the way, uh, this pre political institution is not recognized only by Western cultures or only uh, by historically Christian or Abrahamic cultures or something like that. This is something recognized by all religions and cultures around the world throughout history. Okay? Now, The only way to treat same-sex couples the same as opposite-sex couples was to treat marriage as an institution based on emotional commitment rather than on biology. And that's precisely what nations like Canada, the United States, many Western nations have done. Marriage is no longer about biology and correspondence because of fruitfulness. Rather, it is an institution that strengthens relationships. That's what the, uh, the Canadian Civil Marriage Act says. And the latest example of this is, of course, uh, the transgender movement. The only way the law can treat a trans woman the same as a biolog- biological woman is to dismiss biology as irrelevant. Now, I don't, wanna, I don't want these podcasts to get too long, okay, so I'm going to speak more directly to the issues of gender identity and the transgender movement in the next episode. And hopefully I'm going to show you how the Bible speaks to these issues. Uh, it speaks to the, the issue of gender identity and gender dysphoria in the transgender movement, despite what some people think, that the Bible has nothing to say about it. It does. Uh, and we'll see how the Christian worldview is actually quite unique in its high view of the body and offers hope for those who find themselves struggling to reconcile their inner gender identity with their outer biological sex. And then after that, we'll examine the issue of sexual orientation in upcoming episodes in in greater detail. But for now, here's the takeaway from today. Remember this. Modern society has a very low view of the body, of our physical embodiedness. It has adopted a worldview that separates mind from body and privileges mind over body. And this comes from the Enlightenment, primarily from Kant, right? He set human consciousness at the center of reality, and so reality must conform to the mind. And this has had a profound impact on our culture, okay? From body modification trends to the transhuman movement, the development of modern contraceptives, the rise in pornography use, the development of apps like Tinder and uh, the the rise, I guess you could call it, of what's called hookup culture. It's contributed to the evolution of our understanding of marriage to include same-sex couples, and it's informing the transgender movement. And you know, on the horizon, uh, what we see coming is actually a redefinition of parenthood to exclude biology as a determining factor in establishing parenthood because in a same-sex couple one parent anyway is not biologically connected to the child and so the state will have to redefine legal parenthood without regard to biology these are just some of the consequences of this modern denigration of the of the human body now I think that's a helpful framework for us to hold on to as we consider this these issues in light of the modern conversation around sexual orientation and gender identity. We live in an era where the mind is privileged over the body and we should ask the question, why? Especially in light of the fact that 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 the physical world is in so many other ways so important to modern folks. So we're going to address this issue as it relates to uh, gender identity, particularly identity itself and gender and uh, uh, the transgender movement next time. But I hope this has been helpful for you as a simple way of, of sort of understanding where this is coming from in today's day and age. Anyway, again, I am honored that if you listened all the way to the end, thanks. I am honored that you did so. I hope it's been helpful. Uh, We'll see you next time on the Clear Thinking Podcast from Grace Valley Church. Take care.